Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today I have a very special guest, Sitartelli. Sitartelli, uh, partner at Connect Ventures, has been a longtime friend, but more importantly has been uh, critical in my own career because we were colleagues at Dowdy Hansen, and we'll get into that a little later in the story. But as always, we like to start off with uh, what someone did and what they studied and what they did after that they graduated. So Sitar, maybe let's kick it off there. I know that you went to Duke, but walk us through what you studied there and what was your first job right afterwards? Sure. Uh, first, thanks for having me. Uh, so I, I went to Duke. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering and material science, which is a, a single major there. I focused more on material science because I quite liked chemistry. Uh, and then I had a second major in economics. Uh, and it was one of those things where kind of towards year three, I realized that I probably shouldn't have been studying either of them because I didn't like either one as much as I liked math and computer science. But I was sort of, you know, it, it's also because I was an economics major where I learned about sunk cost fallacy. Uh, so I was already on year three and I thought, well, I'll just finish it up. Uh, and then my first job afterwards, I think, is probably pretty typical of uh, American college students who don't know what they want to do and have a broad skill set, which is I, I went to investment banking. Mm -hmm. So my first job was at Broadview. Uh, so I worked, Broadview is a uh, tech-focused M&A bank. So they just did mergers and acquisitions, uh, mostly sell-side, and uh, almost entirely with you know VC-backed startups mm -hmm. uh, and technology companies. So they had offices in, in technology hubs. So Silicon Valley was actually their biggest office, and then they had offices in Boston and New York and here in London as well. Mm. And what was the Boston scene like back in those days in terms of tech? So it was really going through a, a quite a big change. I mean, it had historically been known for storage companies, mm. so EMC, you know, and like really, I'd say like not at this point, last last generation of, of technology companies. It also had an emerging uh, biotechnology scene, but it was still still emerging. So it was going through this transition period where it had been a tech powerhouse, particularly for for you know really deep tech and innovative tech. And uh, there was less of that coming out, and they they were kind of figuring out what their next thing was. So when you um, when you were at Broadview, were you in some capacity working with any of the companies that uh, acquired um, large companies here in Europe? Or did you deal any European deals? No, no. There was a, another team at the office that had uh, a company that had, I believe, a French, a French founder. But other than that, I mean, we, I mostly worked actually in the healthcare sector. Uh, there was some healthcare in, in, in Boston, but also we just had, we had a healthcare practice and it happened to be based out of the Boston office. So we had clients in, in Maryland and, uh, in Chicago and some other places. And I, and, and that's a practice I worked with. And that was, you know, healthcare tends to be largely within country probably due to regulation. Mm. So most of my clients were were either sold to American acquirers or they were American acquirers that bought other American companies. Mm. So London, then why London? Right, so uh, after by about two years of, of investment banking, I realized that I, I, I liked a lot of the people I worked with and I'd learned a lot. It was a very intense learning environment, uh, but I didn't really enjoy being a banker. Uh, and I particularly didn't enjoy being a sell-side banker because you were there sort of at the at the end of a company's life. Uh, my, my favorite part of, of the 
DD process, which I used to have to help manage, was when the founders would tell the, the origin story of the company. And I always found that really interesting. And then, you know, sort of the, the journey the company went through. And I found that much more interesting than, than what I was actually doing. And so I thought, well, I should, I should be at that stage of the company's life. So I should be very early stage and I should get into venture. And that was a natural path, actually, for a lot of people from, from Broadview. So, uh, so I looked into venture and, you know, typically I looked into California based funds. Uh, and I, I also looked at a couple of New York based funds. And that's really where I was, I was headed, either New York or California. I had this sort of, lifelong dream to live in New York City, at least for a little while. I'd grown up in New Jersey and New York was always just this sort of this place that I, I really wanted to live in for a while. I always thought of myself as I, I must be a New Yorker inside. And and then I got a call from a, a headhunter and uh, they, they had an opportunity based here in London. And uh, I'd previously, actually between Duke and starting at Broadview, I'd lived in South Korea for a year. So I was teaching English and I... I, 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 it was sort of like a, a gap year post-university. So I, I was teaching English. The World Cup was on. Uh, I had fellow teachers from all over the, the world. And I really enjoyed the, the, the international atmosphere and, and really being immersed in a different culture. And, and, and I, I, I miss that, uh, particularly because Boston is, is quite a small city. Uh, and, and it felt very, very kind of uniculture. And so, so, so I really wanted to be in, uh, in an international city again. And so, so I, I, I had the interview with them uh, just by phone. And then they said, well, we're pretty interested. So why don't you come out here and, and an interview with us? And that was with Dowdy Hansen. Mm. And so uh, that was 2005. And I thought, well, for a couple of years, it'd be great mm. to live in London. That was 11 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I came out, I interviewed, I really liked uh, the partners there. Uh, they were very thoughtful, very intelligent, very sincere uh, guys who really deeply love technology and, uh, and, and, and really like, you know, being, being investors. And so I thought I could learn a lot by working with them. And I also at the time had thought venture would be a, a, a transitional job. I thought I would do it for a couple of years and then probably go work at a startup in, a, in an operational role. Because I, I was at this point where I knew I didn't want to be a banker, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to be longer term. And I thought being a VC for a couple of years would help me get closer to the, the starting point of a company. And then I could figure out maybe mm. what, what role I really wanted to have within a company. Mm. And because you were covering a lot of this stuff in health back in Boston, was there any kind of uh, getting used to period or looking at some of the things that were in the interest of the general partners at DH, because I know, you know, with the, with the background of the portfolio of DH and the Intel Capital background that the, the founding partners had, was there, what was your experience like there early days in, in sort of starting to develop what is now become your investment thesis in Connect, but yeah. like, what was that early transition like? And then what were the areas that you were kind of gravitating towards in DH? Sure. So, so actually, in, in the last year when I was at Broadview, uh, we had started working more and more with uh, internet-based companies. And so it was, you know, it, it, it th there had been the bubble where there was probably a lot of really good ideas that didn't make sense at the time because no one had internet access. And then by 2005, it was starting to make sense, right? It was starting to make sense. A lot of those companies and you were starting to build real companies. And so we'd had a couple of clients and I wasn't on those teams, but I, I was close to the, to the, to the uh, the, the, the teams. And so I got to understand those businesses and I found those really interesting, much more interesting than the storage and healthcare sectors I'd been covering. So when I came to London, that was what I really wanted to focus on. Uh, and 
unfortunately for for me, uh, for the first couple of years, it was a uh, it, it was a mission to convince the partners that that was an interesting area. They'd they'd been through the bubble, and one of the reasons why. And this is the the first bubble, the you know two thousand one two thousand two thousand one bubble, and they had successfully raised their fund by not having invested in mm. in in a lot of the companies of that time, right? Their first fund was raised in in about ninety nine or two thousand, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, because they'd avoided investing in those companies, they successfully raised the fund, and you know they they generally weren't internet savvy. As, as partners, they were very technology savvy, but they weren't internet savvy. And so because they didn't understand a lot of the dynamics of the internet, I think they didn't take it seriously mm-hmm. as, a, as an investment area. And so for the first couple of years, I worked a lot with partners on their existing investments, which were semiconductor companies and clean tech companies. And, you know, I had a financial background. And because those companies involved things like debt modeling, mm. th- there was a lot I could I could add and, and I, I could support the partners on it. But in, in my free time, which they gave me a lot of, uh, I immersed myself in, in emerging mm. I- internet companies. Mobile was still, in, in my mind, something yeah. far away. Uh, I found the experience of having, at the time, what was a a, a, a modern phone, which is a Nokia 3G phone, yeah. I still found it fairly basic. Um, and and so I, I didn't really think that was you know an, an an interesting area. I still remember when we had the Nokia N95 that came in, and we had like one to share amongst the team, and we were all like playing with it because it was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so you know, I mean, I mean, there were still you know most of the partners had Blackberries, and it just wasn't really. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 and, and in fact, I think you joined a couple of years after yeah. after uh, yeah. after I joined, and and you were really far ahead of the curve on on mobile because that was when that was your main interest yeah. area, um, and so uh, so 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 it was you know and, and so you went through that too, right? Convincing yeah. the the partners that these were interesting areas to invest in, not just on the deep tech side, but yeah. on on the front end side, and that you know. I think there is uh, this this idea, especially among pe- amongst people that have invested in deeper technologies, that the front end is easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an easy thing to do. That building the front end of software is is just not that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's why a lot of people dismiss u- user experience as a core competency. Mm-hmm. And so 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 yeah. So for the first couple of years, I I, I supported the partners, uh, but at the same time, I was Im- I was immersing myself in different areas and. One of the areas I looked a lot at was music, and it was simply because I really loved music, yeah. right? So I was, at the time, still buying CDs, and I would buy sometimes five to ten CDs a week. I mean, I was a, a major music consumer, and I, I, I could see kind of the, the emergence of being able to listen to music online and not have to buy CDs at all. And actually, I was, I was reading lots of music blogs, and they just have, you know, this embed of yeah. music. And all of a sudden, I didn't have to buy a CD just to discover an artist yeah. I, or, or listen to the radio and hope they played something good. I could mm. find it online. And so I was really immersing myself and trying to figure out what the value chain from, for music was. And, and during that period, it was, it was just a few years after, after I'd, I'd been at, at Hanson, I'd, uh, I, I found SoundCloud, which was, uh, and one of the reasons why I found it is because what I was interested in was, if you think of the value chain of music as starting with creating music, and yeah. ending with consumers consuming music, 
there was a lot on the consumption side yeah. at that time. So there was a lot. So Spotify had started, and and there there were some other. Last FM was around, mm-hmm. which is actually one of the first companies I looked at when I when I joined mm-hmm. Daddy Hanson, and they didn't even want to meet with the company. And about a year later, it was acquired mm-hmm. for about two hundred eighty million. And so, so when I said I wanted to <laughs> look at music again, I had a lot of credibility actually mm-hmm. with the partners, which really helps when you're you're a young VC, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, so I was like. Wanting to invest in a company that you don't and gets acquired for a lot actually really helps you. Yeah. Um, almost more than sometimes even more than actually investing in that company. Yeah. And so so we um, so, so 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 I was looking at that space and there was a lot happening on the consumer side. There was a lot. There was very little happening actually on the artist side. A lot of artist services were still stuck in the sort of client server mode, right? So people would build complex pieces of software which they would distribute on CDs. Still, mm-hmm. and you would install it, and it would be a you know digital audio workstation, and that would help you sequence music. There's very little on the artist side that that was on the web, and SoundCloud just happened to be one of them. And I was quite lucky because DH only did European investments, and they happened to be based in Berlin. So so I met with them, and and you know it was uh, late 2000. No, it was January 2009, which was a few months after you know, the worst financial crisis yeah. we've ever seen. And so in a way, it was a, it was a good thing for me because the company had had a lot of trouble raising money. Yeah. You know, I think in any other period, they would have gotten their A round very quickly. But uh, because people were so scared of making investments, because people had no idea what was going to be happening to their funds, uh, everyone was scared to make investments. We, DH, were in the position where we had a fresh fund, uh, yeah. A lot of the partners were actually musicians, right? So if you remember, yeah. Ivan and Nigel, they're, they're musicians, and they could empathize with what SoundCloud was doing quite a bit on the fr- from from a, a music creator's perspective, mm-hmm. uh, and and they'd wanted me to to make my first investment. So there was sort of this, you know, great confluence of events where we got to lead the A round in SoundCloud. Yeah, you know, and that and that was obviously one of the, the highlights at the time. Um, and also, it was great that we got to obviously spend time with the founders and hear how they thought about the company and how they thought about the product. And what was really interesting, actually, was looking back at those days and looking at how much what we now take for granted in terms of quality and, and sort of pride in, in product development they had in the company. And yeah. it was so, so outstanding vis-a-vis sort of other comparables at the time. <coughs> so maybe this is a good... Um, this is a good point for, for you to like share a little bit about your views regarding product and UX. You know, one of the things that you're known for in the ecosystem is that you're very keen on founding teams that take products seriously. But maybe we can dig deep into that. Obviously, leveraging uh, when you left Dowdy Hansen to, to start up Connect, but also kind of the, the, the development of your thinking regarding product and UX and sort of the motivation for, for why you wanted to sort of branch out on your own. Sure. So, so the, my, my thinking around product uh, and user experience really developed by working with the SoundCloud founders. So I owe Alex and Eric quite a bit in terms of really developing my thinking there. So uh, they were both, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but they actually studied human-computer interaction in university, which is effectively user experience. And one of the reasons why SoundCloud was was in the early days such a such a different experience and such a well-designed experience is because it's something that they deeply cared about. 
and you know working with them i remember i used to uh soundcloud was one of the you know at the time it was my my only investment and uh i used to just send alex probably too many emails but i would send him emails and i'd say like this is another you know a, a potential integration opportunity or business opportunity and he he would you know he he would always give me really good feedback on it and one of the pieces of feedback he gave me one time was he said if it doesn't scale with us we can't do it right and it's that sort of product thinking which is we're going to grow really really fast we're growing fast we're growing faster every day whatever whatever integrations or partnerships we have they have to move with us and that's i think the difference between a, a product thinker and and maybe a someone who thinks more about partnerships or thinks more about marketing is they really think about scale and how can you accomplish things with with software mm-hmm. and and then also you know just they you know they they definitely had customer support issues etc but if you think about the scale that they were at i mean when we invested they had 50,000 uh users and a couple months later they had 100,000 and these seem like small numbers now but at the time facebook was much smaller than it is now uh mobile was was really really nascent and so growing was a lot harder than it is now growing fast was a lot harder than it is now and so they they were reaching pretty big numbers pretty quickly and um it they'd never spent money on marketing and it was really this sort of you know this viral uh growth which mm-hmm. everyone always always uh looks right and i i remember i spent a lot of time thinking about why they were growing so fast and what it was and i kind of just came to the conclusion that viral is just another word for good mm-hmm. you know people tell each other about good experiences they tell each other when they they find a product or they find an experience or a service that they really love and you can't you can't make that happen you can you can add fuel to the fire but you can't create it and you know having user experience and having soft, if you think about uh any any technology company that is a software company the front end is what the user whether it's a business or a consumer it's what they interact with mm-hmm. and so if you deliver a great user experience you're you're delivering a viral experience right you're delivering an experience that is a standout experience and if you don't deliver a great user experience you're not just not you're not just delivering a bad experience to the user you're also making everything else about the company harder right you're creating more customer support issues you get questions like how do i do this because not because it's hard but because it's not obvious because mm-hmm. you need to design it in a way that you know the user journey makes sense mm-hmm. uh it part of it is interface design part of it is just the the flow it's when you introduce concepts to to users it's a really complex di- discipline but putting it at the center of what you do uh at, at the time of that it really really affects uh the initial growth of the company and also how the company thinks about all aspects how it thinks about marketing how it thinks about sales etc mm-hmm. and so and you know one thing one thing i think we both know is the a company's culture is really a reflection of what the founders care about and if the founders don't care about product and user experience the company won't either it's not something you can graft on. Mm. And so if you, you know, if 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 you're looking for product centric companies, you have to be looking for founders that care about product and and founders that care about user experience. And so that that was my my thing that that was my my development around that that mm. thesis. And I was also thinking at this, at the time this was about 2011 what I wanted to do next because I knew you know I I I really appreciate the opportunity I got from Dowdy Hansen, but I'd made two investments in that 6 years, mm-hmm. right? And and the firm hadn't made that many more investments in that period. So it just wasn't 
a firm that was going to be making a lot of investments. And, you know, the future of the firm wasn't certain because what the partners were skilled at wasn't necessarily the future of where venture capital was going, right? Mm -hmm. The deep tech stuff wasn't really getting funded. It's not what was creating the returns. And, you know, it got increasingly difficult to do software-centric companies at the at the at the firm because because everything was moving online and the and the partners didn't really understand internet services it just became really hard to convince them that that this was a great investment to make and and they really didn't understand product and user experience so it was uh, it was hard to convince them and so i knew i was going to have to to leave and do something where i could put you know where i i, I could really follow through on my thesis but if we, if we take a, a pause and say that from a point of view of um, somebody who might be either considering starting a company or an investor who might be listening to this who hadn't really thought about product as such a centric thing, you've done an amazing argument of saying why this is an important thing to focus on and why it has to be within the DNA of the organization. But what I'd like to do is sort of uh, uh, sort of take that apart, pick that apart and say, what are the elements that you look for when yeah. you're evaluating a company to assess whether or not you are actually dealing with a team that takes this seriously. Because yeah. one thing, it's very easy for somebody to say, yes, I take product very seriously. And yeah. today with Bootstrap and a couple of other things, like you can make things look pretty yeah. on the first glance mm-hmm. as if you had thought about them. But how do you go into the deeper bits of that analysis? So one of the first things we start with in, in any meeting, this is true for myself and for, my, for both of my partners as well, is we, uh, we always ask them to start with the product. Right. So we say, you know, they'll, they'll usually bring up the presentation and we always say, actually, we'd like to see the product first. And, you know, if you if you spend a lot of time looking at user experience, you, you, you learn a lot quickly. So one of the things we'll always look at is what's the onboarding. And you learn a lot about whether someone really understands user experience by going through an onboarding and sign up experience. Right. It, for example, for a marketplace, where is the sign up process? Is it before I've seen anything in the marketplace? Or is it further down the journey when I've actually seen what you offer and I have some reason to sign up? It seems like a minor thing, but a lot of user experience seems like minor things and they make a really big difference. And it it's the difference between someone thinking about what's best for the company and what's best for the user, right? So a lot of times when I meet with the company and they've put a gate up before I can even interact with their service or their product, I'll ask them why they did that and they'll say, well, we need the email address. I said, okay, one, it's completely unqualified. They've never seen your service, so what value is the email address? But also, two, if you want the email address, you haven't really given them anything yet. You haven't shown them your product yet, right? And, and if, you, if, you, if you get people that really think about product, they might still put a gate up in the front, but they have a reason for it. They have a reason that actually has to do with the user and not with the company. And so, so a lot of it is just asking questions, and a lot of it is spending time on the product. Sometimes, though, there isn't a product. So one of the first investments we made at, at uh, Connect was a company called CityMapper. So CityMapper is a, is a transport planner. It helps you get from point A to point B in, in any city. Well, currently about 40 cities, I think, around the world, and they're, they're expanding that quite a bit. Uh, he had wireframes, right? That, that, that's all he had. He, he was a product designer, but he wasn't a developer. So what he had was wireframes. He had a web version of the product, and he'd previously built products. And this is another thing that we'll, 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 we'll dig into, is what have you done previously? What have you designed previously? What can I look at that tells me how you think as a, as a product designer? 
how you think as a product person. Even if you're not the product designer, even if you're working with a product designer, in the end, it's it's you that's deciding this is good enough to be out there. And so looking at that also helps me understand how seriously do you do, do you take this. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a, a single bullet answer, but it's a, a, a discipline you develop over time, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's one that I think we've gotten better at. So if you look at some of our fund one investments, there are definitely times when we we weren't as focused on on the product experience of the founders. We were excited about their growth rate, or we were excited mm-hmm. about uh, how quickly they were they were signing up customers. Mm-hmm. And those aren't bad things; those are really good things. But uh, but we we compromised on mm-hmm. our product focus. And one of the things we've done in the past couple of years is really double down actually mm-hmm. on 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 product. On um, so the argument behind providing a user value and then making conscious decision about what part of the product you're going to showcase, whether you do put a paywall for whatever reason or you don't put a paywall and you offer a product for free for a certain amount and then you then create a conversion event. These are all elements that rely on a couple of psychological um, tools and, and there's a book by Caldini on the, the psychology of influence. And the more you understand things like attribution effect, like for example, the more that you create a product, the easier it is to convert. So like if you give somebody like the ability to like create a mini Lego or a a Minecraft type thing, the likelihood of you monetizing that later because you've already created something goes up exponentially, right? Because it is some of the value there. But the, the, the thinking and the psychology of what drives conversion is always evolving. Mm-hmm. Is, the, is the body of knowledge that you look at for product something that you're adapting as sort of the latest in psychology and the psychology of influence changes? Or is it something that you think has matured now to the point where it's pretty static? And so like it's just a matter of everybody catching up and, and, and just implementing that. And the bulk of people that you meet haven't really thought about things. They're just copying other people. And they haven't really thought about the latest in psychology thinking and how it applies to product. I think it, a lot of that depends on the sector that you're looking at. I mean, there are definitely sectors that are more mature. Like I'd say, actually, a lot of consumer sectors are quite mature, right? They've dealt with really large markets uh, and, you know, the 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 need to make money at some point becomes really, really strong. Whereas if you're a B2B SaaS company, you've kind of made money from the beginning mm-hmm. and maybe haven't in in a, in a way, you almost haven't focused as much on conversion because you've always had the, the luxury of revenue at the top. Uh, and you sometimes have much smaller markets, and so you don't have the volume that, mm. that you need to, to develop. Uh, but I think, you know, when conversion, though, is just one aspect of the of the user experience, right? Mm. And so, I mean, it's, it's such a broad discipline, it becomes almost un, unwieldy mm-hmm. uh, to look at. So, uh, you know, you can apply user experience to marketing, and to business model design and to uh, to customer support, right? And and customer success. All these different areas have user experience at its center. If you if you do them really well, we focus on product initially because for a few reasons. One, uh, at a seed stage, it's the most efficient thing you can invest in, mm-hmm. right? So product is what everyone experiences, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a software company, everyone experiences product. Mm-hmm. Everyone coming to your site, everyone downloading your app, everyone buying your service, they're all experiencing the product. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's a very efficient uh, area to invest in, and it scales really well, right? That, that's, that's, I guess, the, 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 the flip side of, of, of the efficiency is, is, is uh, you, you, you don't have to invest much in it because it's really thought mm-hmm. and, and, and developer time and design time uh, versus marketing money, right? Mm-hmm. Which, which, which can be really expensive and, and may not have returns initially. Uh, but then also, as your user base grows, 
that the returns on investing in in product and user experience uh, scale mm-hmm. right with the, with the user base. So it's one of the reasons why we focus so much on product in the beginning. But as companies grow and mature, and they they develop. You know, a lot of our teams are just product in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then they develop customer service, and they develop marketing, and they develop a sales team, and try to encourage them to really put user experience in the center of all of that. Mm-hmm. But it's harder because you you'll have people that are, for example, user experience designers, and they're almost always product people. You rarely have a user experience designer that is a marketing person mm-hmm. or in customer support or customer success. And so I think those areas are actually still quite immature. In the, in their in, in their thinking and development, because a lot of people associate user experience simply with the di- digital part of the business and not enough with the other functions of the business. So it sounds to me like we're still at early days. Just having like what is known to function to work to be applied across the organization in a way that maximizes the organization efficiency. Yeah. Cool. Well, it sounds like that was a big catalyst in you wanting to start Connect. But maybe you can walk us through the challenges of starting a fund. Um, choosing colleagues, obviously Bill and Pietro, and then sort of setting that thesis because obviously with any partnership, you kind of balance that that view and, and also trying to understand whether or not they share that view with you in yep. the first place. So maybe you can walk us through that. Yeah. So uh, I got, I was very, very lucky with, with Connect Ventures actually because I, I was in a space where I was thinking about leaving Daddy Hanson, but I wasn't sure what to do next. I didn't want to join one of the large firms because you know, I had this thesis and I really wanted it to be at the center of what the firm did. And I didn't think that was going to happen if I if I joined another firm, especially one of the more established ones. You know, you're not going to change what 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 Index does. You're not going to change what what Bowderton does or Excel does. And so, you know, I I I, almost, I knew I had to start a firm from scratch, mm. but I didn't even know where to begin. Right. I didn't even know how to how to start. And it's just almost dumb luck uh, at the time. Dan Hansen had recently made an investment in a company called Secret Sales. And Connect had already started, actually. So Connect had started in January 2012. They'd gotten off the ground. So Pietro and Bill had raised some initial amount of money. Uh, I think it was about 13 million pounds. And they had made their first investment, and it was Secret Sales. And so Bill and I were both observers on the board. And we got to know each other pretty well. And it's, it's this sort of very large, unwieldy board, really long board meetings, like five, six hours. And I was always thinking, like, how can I make this better? Because it's not a great experience and it's not very good for the founders. Yeah. And so how can you make it better? And, and, and Bill had similar thinking. And so, you know, we were, we were talking quite a bit about it. And then one day he's like, why don't you come by the office and we can, we can you know, discuss how to, how, to make it, how to make it better. And I went by and they said, actually, <laughs> we wanted to talk about you joining Connect. Uh, and I was, I was definitely surprised because it was, it was a small fund, right? A 13 million pound fund can't sustain three partners. Uh, they said like, this isn't for this fund. We're building a fund for the future, you know, fund two, fund three, fund four. And that partnership is really important. Uh, and so, you know, we'll take the hit quote unquote now, which is, you know, we're all going to have lower salaries or, you know, it's going to be a little bit tough. We're going to, we don't, we definitely don't have enough fees to cover three people, but we're, well, if you're willing to do it, we're willing to do it because we think it's an investment in the future. And I, that thinking around a partnership really impressed me actually that they were, they were really long-term thinking. And then there were a few other things. So the second investment they'd made was a uh, city mapper. So I had actually known Azmat for, for a while. 
Uh, he, I'd met him at Seed Camp, actually, mm-hmm. uh, where, where, where he was an intern. And we'd gotten to know each other, and, and he'd pitched me City Mapper, and I was like, look, I'm, Dowdy Hanson's not going to do this. Like, it's just not the kind of firm that's going to do this. You're going to have to talk to someone else. But, you know, what you want to do is super ambitious. You're, you're basically taking on Google. Like, you're, you know, it's really ambitious. I think it makes a lot of sense because it's a, it's a focused product solving a problem, whereas Google Maps is not. And if it is, it's solving a very different problem. And so, so that was really interesting. But I was, I was actually quite skeptical that he would get funding because it was such a product-centric approach. It's almost like a... a, a religion with, with, with Asimap, that he's mm. so, so, so focused on it. And so I wasn't sure who would, who would support him on that. And then I was on holiday, actually, and I got a call from him, and I said, I got a term sheet. And I said, oh, that's amazing. Uh, uh, you know, do you want to, like, talk about it at all? He's yeah. like, well, I have some questions about it. I'm not sure about this, and I really want to negotiate hard on... I was like, look, Asimap, I didn't really think anyone was going to give you a term sheet. So maybe don't negotiate that hard because I'm not sure what your other options are. <laughs> like, I don't, you don't have a bunch of people at the table. And so, and this seems like a pretty good offer. Like, you know, and it, it seems really good. I didn't know at the time that it was from Connect. And then a, a couple months later, I found out that it was from Connect. And I was really impressed because that's a very risky investment to make. Mm-hmm. It was at seed. It was only a few hundred thousand. But it was so singularly product focused that it really, really impressed me. And then, you know, as we started speaking, companies came up for investment and I was seeing them and they were seeing them. And so we would see them independently and we would yeah. we would talk about them afterwards and we had very similar thinking around, you know, value chains, where value is in terms of that in in, in, in terms of that 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 chain, uh product thinking, you know, how what what was the skill set of the founders? Was there a good distribution of skill set? And how how much do they really care? And, you know, it, it, at the time, they'd only made a handful of investments. And one of them was Secret Sales, which is really not a product company, right? It's, a, it's an e-commerce company. Yeah. Uh, it had kind of struggled with product for a while. But the other investments they made were, were quite product-centric. And so that, that and obviously lots of conversations with them, which were quite frank mm. and, and upfront, really convinced me that, you know, these, these two guys were building the firm that I would have built if I, you know, if I had like a blank sheet of paper yeah. and money, this is the firm I would build. Yeah. And so was, was in the role, like fully, fully within the role, was Typeform one of those first companies? That you- no, Typeform was, a, was an investment that we made actually only in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's actually one of our more recent investments. Okay. So what, maybe if we, if we do focus on Typeform a little bit, what, what are the things that sort of have now been smoothened out in terms of the, how you review deals now as a team? And mm-hmm. that led to something like Typeform being done. Right. So, so I think, you know, we, you, look, you look at Typeform now yeah. and you think, oh, it's so obvious. But yeah. like, when you, back then, I mean, it was like, okay, you could fill out better forms. Yeah. You know? So like, walk us through that. Well, so, so, uh, so I think, you know, by 2014, we'd been working together for a couple of years and our product thinking had developed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd seen the success of, of, of a, a, a city mapper and we'd seen some of the struggles, some of our other less products central companies had made and we, you know, we're really doing this uh, sort of soul searching around like, where had we made mistakes in our investments? Because you make mistakes, right? Mm. Sometimes things just don't work out, the market doesn't pan out. And sometimes there was an error in your decision making process. And I think, you know, really good VCs, they go back, there's a lot of, there has to be intellectual honesty. There also has to be a pretty good memory of 
what it was like when you made the investment and why you really made the investment. Yeah. And so we, we do that on a regular basis, you know, mm-hmm. especially when a company is, is struggling, right? You know, where, where was, was the issue? Was it the investment from the beginning was always going to have this problem or was it something that happened on the, on the journey? Because I think if you don't do that, then you're not learning. And so, and you know, you learn, I think, much more from, from the investments you make that don't work out than you do from the investments that, that do work out. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so we were looking at that, but also looking at the investments that were working and, and really developing our, our thinking along it. And then at the time, um, we had made an investment called Infogram. Mm-hmm. So Infogram is a way to create uh, graphs and v- visualize data. And we had done that investment with Point9. Mm-hmm. And so Pietro my partner was on the board with Christoph Jans and point nine had invested in Typeform. So they'd done the initial seed round and, and Christoph mentioned to Pietro, he said, Hey, they're, they're looking to raise a kind of like a, like an extension round. Mm -hmm. Are are you interested? It's not much money. It's like a hundred, 150 K. And we got really excited because we'd noticed that most of our portfolio was using Typeform. Like anytime they sent out a survey, anytime we got a questionnaire from them, anytime they had a form, that they use Typeform. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was so ubiquitous that, and, and I feel terrible saying this, but I assumed it was a Silicon Valley company. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even, it was such a good product and it was such a, such a stark difference in user experience mm-hmm. between that and SurveyMonkey or even between that and Google Docs at the time. I think now Google Docs has actually improved a bit, but, uh, SurveyMonkey, I think, still has to struggle a lot. If I push back on that and I look at, uh, a business like Typeform and I say, yes, there are many other businesses out there who could fix one element of any one other person's workflow, you know, be it forms, be it sheets, be it graphs, infogra- infographics, uh, audio processing, whatever. There's tons of bits of the value chain that can be kind of fixed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a very, very big and valuable company mm-hmm. worthwhile of like a seed or series A investor coming in. Yeah. And I want to understand a little bit how you how you think about marrying sort of a very um, product centric view that sometimes goes down to the nitty gritty of yeah. like a component part that can then scale up into a, a company a proper yeah. company. Sure. So, so I, actually, this would be a good time to to talk about kind of what we look for at, at Connect. So there's three things we we look for. So product and user experiences are I think are, are key differentiator. I think the other two things a lot of people look for, which is founder market fit. So founders that really understand the market they're going after and uh, um, founders on a mission. Mm-hmm. And and the reason we look for those two things, and I think the reason a lot of VCs look for those things is it's related to what you're talking about, which is uh, if founders really understand their mar- the market they're going after, their uh, their horizon is constantly expanding. Right, because once they get into solving a problem, they start seeing adjacent areas where they can solve problems, and they see deeper problems than you would if you don't really understand that market well. And the founder on a mission is is it's it, it, it's related, right? You're you're going to overcome obstacles uh, with a strength and a willpower that mm-hmm. you won't if you're just doing this to make money, right? If you're really trying to solve a problem because it bothers you, you're going to. So the founders of of Typeform uh, were both designers. And they both had agencies and they kept having to build forms, like constantly build forms for their, for their, uh, clients. And they, they did so much. And I think they were sharing an office at the time or they had a joint client and they, they had to do a form again. And they thought, why don't we just 
make a company that makes forms that look good and you can design them however you want, you know? And one of the things David Akunyev, who's the, the co-CEO and, and the co-founder, and he says, uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to ask humanly. There has to be a, a human interaction. When you have a form or you have a survey, you're asking someone a question. That is one of the, it, that's a very human interaction. And if you look at most forms and surveys, they are inhumane, right? They're not human, human interactions. And so making the interaction human, and that's something that gets beyond what something looks like or what should be priced or what's our marketing strategy, right? It's, it's a philosophy around the company. And that philosophy uh, infects everything they do, from their office design to their marketing strategy to how they hire and onboard employees. It's all done with the, you know, put the human at the center. Uh, and, and, and I think that philosophy is something that comes from being, you know, on a mission and being so in love with what you're doing mm -hmm. and, and understanding it so well that it allows you to rise beyond sort of building a point solution uh, and, and building a company and building something that's even more than a company. It's, it's really a, it's, it's like a brand that stands for something. Uh, and it, it stands for something that, you know, when, when you mention Typeform to people, they don't, I don't think they think, oh yeah, it's surveys. They think that's an awesome product, actually. And if you look at, you look on Twitter, people actually tweet about how much they love Typeform. It's a form and survey company, right? I mean, it, it's going to be much more, like they're working on some stuff that's really interesting, but, you know, if, if, if you were to just look at the company as a, as, you know, just come in and look at their website, it's a form and survey company. Why are people expressing love for it? And I think that's the kind of thing that you, you, you have to see that it's, it's, it's hard, right? It's qualitative. And, and, but when you see something like that, so when, when we saw our portfolio companies using it, we asked them about it and they said, we would never use anything else. It's just the best thing ever. Like it's, you use it to ask people questions. They said, no, it's amazing. And we get so many responses. And actually, that's a pretty critical thing, right? So like, wh why do you do it? Is it, you know, because sending out surveys that are pleasant to take is like a really nice thing to do? Yes, it's a really nice thing to do and you should treat your users well. But also, they get five times the responses of a survey monkey, mm. right? So there's a business reason for, for, for it. And I, always, I, I actually give this talk where, you know, why does focusing on user experience make business sense? And I think it's actually one of the most compelling reasons to yeah. focus on it. Yeah, it makes sense. When you look at it at, uh, at scale, mm -hmm. does that mean that you're, you're, you're basically taking a bet that by being such a critical part of the value chain for every company's operation, that there is eventually a, a large distributed base of in using Christoph Jans's uh, methodology of elephant versus flies. Yeah. You've effectively created a, maybe not a fly, but like something larger rabbits than that, is, rabbits is that, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you effectively created a business that is rabbit oriented. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that and there's also, so th there's a few things. So one, we knew that SurveyMonkey does a couple hundred million a year. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time they were raising a few hundred million in debt mm -hmm. at a, you know, multi-billion dollar valuation. Mm -hmm. And so, so we knew there was a big company there, right? There was market precedent for it. We also knew that that company's software and mm -hmm. experience was quite dated, mm -hmm. right? And there was an opportunity to, to, to kind of take it over. But mm -hmm. in addition to SurveyMonkey, there were lots of other tools that people use. So the market was actually much, much bigger mm -hmm. than just a couple hundred million, which is not a very big market mm -hmm. for software. And so, you know, and, and you, you look at most companies and even individuals and, mm -hmm. and prosumers, if you will, like people that maybe freelancers, people that have to use, use surveys professionally, almost everyone needs forms and surveys, right? So it's part of the fabric of the web. And, Again, one of the reasons why they started it is 
if you looked around the web, pre-type form, and even now in some places, you look at a form or, or a survey online and it looks like it's from 1995, mm -hmm. right? It just, it's, it's a part of the fabric of the web and part of increasingly part of the fabric of, of mobile and it hasn't progressed, right? And you run into it all the time. And so when you see something that's so distributed and so embedded in, in people's user experience, daily user experience, you know there's a, a big opportunity there. Mm -hmm. And so, but, but the, there was a revenue precedent for why it was so big. Mm -hmm. There's lots of forms and surveys companies that, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's sort of the, the bet you take is spending time with the founders, you know, con being convinced that they're, they're not just building a company, they mm -hmm. really have a vision that they're following, yeah. and then convincing them to take much more money that they yeah. wanted to because, you know, 150K wasn't going to really wasn't gonna be, be, be that exciting for us. And, and it turned out to be great, right? Because yeah. we made that investment in 2014, and a year later, they raised mm -hmm. a $15 million A run from, from Index. And if they hadn't raised that amount of money, they wouldn't have been able to get that far. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Makes sense. Well, um, let's move to some fun questions. I have three fun questions to ask you. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to um, kick off the first one being, what is the one thing you wish you were more of an expert on right now? Ooh, there's the one thing I wish I was more of an expert on. We already on. know where you're an expert, but what would you be more <laughs> of an expert on? So, so, so I, I guess what I've struggled with... It doesn't have to be work-related, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking work-related. I'm, I'm already... I'm, I'm, I'm in that mode, so... So <laughs> I, I think what I struggle with a lot is... I, I think in the end, everything has a, a front-end and, and a user experience. What I struggle with a lot is how can we, as a firm that focuses on this, also get into areas that are that are, you know, maybe not at that stage yet, but potentially will be. So this is things like drones or autonomous driving or, you know, areas which are now in the sort of deep tech and development phase mm -hmm. where, you know, potentially the, the front end isn't as important yet because if you don't solve the deeper problems, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's the right time for us to start investing in those companies? And, and you know, should I immerse myself in them now? And I think I, I should. And it, it's, it's a very different mm. uh, area for me and, you know, for, for all three of us and, and very different type of thinking. And so, so, so I, I wish I, I, I was immersed more into that and, mm. and, and more into some of the, the emerging tech areas. All right, cool. How about if you could be guaranteed one thing in life besides money, what would it be? Anything? Anything. You could be guaranteed one thing in life besides money. What would it be? Oh, that's pretty easy. Happiness. Happiness. Like, yeah, Happiness. for sure. Beach then, holidays. Sun. Not even that. I think just like, you know, in your daily life, like being happy in your daily life is just one of the best things ever. And, you know, sometimes work can get really stressful or personal mm. life can get really stressful. And like you just, you know, if, if you're self-aware i think you really notice the differences between when you're in a really good mood mm. and when you're not mm. and if you could control it but not in a like artificial way if i could mm. just have that kind of positive attitude all the time and i know some people that are like that and they blow me away mm. you know people are just kind of like they seem happy not happy or you know yeah. positive optimistic kind of all the time yeah. i really admire them there's that great book happiness hypothesis which are a mutual friend as well, Jason, uh, recommended. Oh, yeah. Have you read it? It's, no. It's actually quite interesting. It doesn't say how to be happy, but it does say, it, it does showcase the things that correlate with being unhappy. Right. And one of the interesting things is like um, the the proximity to where you work is correlated to happiness or unhappiness. So if you're really far away from work, it, it correlates with unhappiness. And really? the other one is noise. Okay. So like the more noise there is, the more unhappy you can be. So like if you're like living in the intersection of the street, 
and there's a lot of noise, you're likely to get divorced, you know, because really? arguments are just exacerbated, you know, no that kidding. kind of stuff. So that's interesting. interesting. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. All right. If you could send a message to the entire world, what would you say in 30 seconds? What? <laughs> These questions are evil. Yeah. Uh, if you're building a global founding uh, team uh, with great product, come to Connect Ventures. <laughs> to the I've world. For you. Uh, uh, Message to the world. This is a hard one. Yeah, it's, um, a hard one. it's a hard one. That's a really hard one. It's a hard one. I'd say, well, I'm going to, I guess, give a message to the audience, yeah. which I assume is, is at least uh, somewhat technology or, yeah. uh, oriented. I'd say whatever you're building, uh, try to think about how you can make your users happy. Well, thanks for joining, Sitar. Uh, it's always great talking to you and always learn a lot. Bye. Bye.